Good morning. Good morning. We want to welcome you here. I think there's as many people here today as there was last week. I do want to welcome you at home. I've never done this before. And uh, I, I guarantee you, I want you to rate, I know you're in your pajamas. I know there's some of you in your pajamas right now. You have your coffee. I want to encourage you to turn it up. I mean, listen to this. What an advantage. You can actually control the volume today at home. I mean, what a great thing. So uh, we've never done this before. We've never been in this place in our country maybe before, and um, we have come together as believers. That's good news. There are people in this world that believe in a God that's way bigger and way stronger and way smarter, and he has the whole world in his hand. I'm going to read as we begin this morning Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength. He's always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear when earthquakes come and when mountains crumble and when there's no toilet paper. <laughs> this is a more current version here I'm reading. <laughs> Let the oceans roar and foam. Let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. A river brings joy to the city of God, the sacred home of the Most High. God dwells in that city. It cannot be destroyed. From the very break of day, God will protect it. The nations are in chaos. And their kingdoms crumble. God's voice thunders and the earth melts. The Lord of heaven's armies is here among us. The Lord of heaven's armies is here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. 
Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know. Be still and realize that I am God. It feels like our world is freaking out. We want to blame it on the media and what. The fact is, is our world is freaking out. And I want to encourage us all to be a part of a community that love and has grace and has the truth. Be still and know that I am God. Father, we calm ourselves today. We open our hands. We open our futures. We open our community. For we have closed down the schools and work and lots of things. But as believers, we are open to what You're doing. Will You open our eyes to people around us? Where you open our eyes to opportunities to grow and to love and to show grace. We open ourselves up today. We have no idea what you're doing, but we know you know what you're doing. So we entrust ourselves to you today. Will you hear our prayers? Will you pause now as we start our service? Will you talk to him? Father, we're grateful that we have you. We're grateful that we know you. And we all said, amen. amen. From your couch at home, amen. Will you all stand? And you can stay on the couch, but you might want to stand. Hosanna. Hosanna means God saves. Praise Rising, eyes are turning to you. We turn to you. Hope is stirring, eyes are yearning for you. We long for you. When we
that is our fortress. Glory, hallelujah. goes like this. Jesus is with me, abides with Jesus is with me. 
strange, a little bit uh, unnerving sometimes, and frustrating at others, and just, just difficult to kind of figure out our way through. It's really awesome to know that this isn't new to God. He's, he knew this was coming. He's been there and done that through different things throughout the ages, and it has never rocked him not once. Why? Because he is the rock. There is nothing that can split that rock. He's solid. So we don't have anything to worry about as far as who's in control and what's going to happen because he's got it. It's kind of hard to be on the side where we don't know what's coming. I like to plan and I like to uh, know the next step and to be in control. But I found that when I lean into him, all that fear just kind of settles down, kind of washes away. And he just gives this peace that just is like a river flowing underneath it all. And it just keeps going, keeps going. And it's cooling like when you dip your feet in the water. And it just feels so good when you take your shoes off and you step into that water. And you can trust him through it all. He's got this. And we just need to pray through this. Because when we do, he can take it all. And we don't have to be so fearful for it. So I want to encourage you today. Today is National Day of Prayer. After we're done and we go home, set some time aside pray for the whole world to know him and to trust him and to dip their feet in that water because it's going to change it. It's going to change everything about their heart because he makes it all well. And we just don't have to worry when he's in charge of it. Can be called and broken from 
Jesus, we know things are well. We know that you're in control. We know that we can laugh and have joy because it is well with you. And we thank you for that. Thank you for being here with us, Lord. And I pray trust will just fall into our hearts because your spirit plants it there. Let us trust in you. Let us believe what your word says in Jesus' name. When peace like a river Whatever, whatever, whatever my love, thou hast taught me to say, is well, is well with my soul.
still and know that I am God. Your love never fails, it never gives up, never runs out on me. Your love never fails, it never gives up, never runs out on me. Your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. Your love. You are higher.
is it that he never gives up? Man, let's, let's thank him for that. Lord, we're just sitting here in your presence right now. Everybody just say something of praise to the Lord. Thank him. Lord, thank you for getting us here this week. Thank you for hearing us. Thank you for calming us. Thank you for giving us hope in you. Thank you for loving us the way that you do, Lord, and thank you for our church home. Thank you for Pastor Tim and the word he's getting ready to bring. Anoint him, Lord, and plant it deep down and let it root. Thank you, Father, for meeting us here. We give all this back to you and pray it glorifies your name. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you went to the grocery store this week? I went on Thursday. You would have thought I was in a game show. And everyone had been given a card and told you have three minutes to get everything you want. Because at Walmart, the carts were heaped up. And they were running those things through those aisles like there was... I mean, it was dangerous to be in the aisles... So it's an interesting time that we are in. Most of you probably noticed that we didn't pass offering plates today. <laughs> but you will notice on the way out that there are offering plates on those tables on the back. And if you would be so kind as to place your offering in those, it would be greatly appreciated. I suppose that uh, our stewardship has never been more important in the life of this congregation than it is these days. So your help with that is appreciated. You'll also find hand sanitizer back there in case you happen to shake hands with someone today. You can uh, sanitize your hands because you don't know what they've been touching or where they've been. Some of you, I noticed last Sunday, are a little slow. You know, I sat up here last Sunday with four chairs and a table. 
And when the service was over, you were asking each other, why was he sitting down? Does he ever preach standing up? And you miss the whole point that the sermon last Sunday was called the waiting room. It was a waiting room. I was sitting in a waiting room. You don't know what I may do from week to week, so just kind of roll with it, okay? Because we're going to have a good time. And now some of you are saying, what is that old crappy piece of furniture he's got up there leaning on? Hey, I built this with my own two hands in my garage. And I did it to try and match this back wall. And I think I did a pretty good job. I actually do. Yeah, come on. And now just let me say to those of you who are watching the stream live, I wish you were here. I really do. But um, we wouldn't have room for you. This place is packed. In fact, ushers, if you would, please prepare to bring in some more chairs because I still see people in the foyers wanting to get in. So if you could just be ready uh, with some extra chairs to bring in and fill up these sides, that would be uh, really exceptional. I would appreciate it. If you have a Bible with you today, you might want to turn with me to uh, the book of Galatians. That's right before you get to Ephesians. And you might want to turn there to chapter 6. The video you saw run a moment ago was in tribute to a speech given in 1941 by Winston Churchill. He wasn't Sir yet. He would later become Sir Winston Churchill, but in 1941 he was still just Winston Churchill. He didn't become Sir until 1953. He was invited to speak at his old school. It was called Harrow School. It was a school where as a boy he nearly flunked out. And there's a common myth about that speech that you saw just a bit of this morning. And the myth says that when he stood to speak, he acknowledged the introduction that he had been given, and then he spoke just 29 words, and then sat down. The truth is that that speech was two pages long, and near the middle of that speech, he spoke words which became really the stuff of legend. And those words to the class of 1941 in the middle of that speech were these. Young men, never give up. Never give up. Never give up. Never, 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 never. And I'm drawn to that quote this morning as I invite you to look with me at the sixth chapter of Galatians. There was a crisis going on in the church in Galatia. Um, some of those who were new Christians were being told by the older Christians with incredible Jewish background that they had to abide by all of the laws of the Jews. And Paul here, in often stern tones, talks to them like a father might instruct them not to give up the freedom that they have discovered in Christ. He is basically saying to them, you don't have to live by that legalism. There is a freedom that you have in Jesus, and I'm encouraging you not to give that up. There's a battle going on. A battle between those 
who had been around a while and those who were becoming brand new followers of this of this Jesus, this itinerant preacher from up in Galilee. And so there was this battle going on between some kind of a, of a previous way to live and a newfound freedom. And so in chapter 5, though I want you to be in chapter 6, but in chapter 5 he describes the atmosphere in the Galatian church. And it is a church in crisis. In chapter 5 verse 15 he says that they were biting and devouring each other. And in verse 26, he says they were provoking and envying each other. And in the midst of those two verses, between those two um, references, he describes in comparison the difference between living according to the sinful nature as compared to living in the fullness of the Spirit. Or what we become when living by the freedom that we have in Christ and the freedom that we have from the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So he has spent five chapters correcting the church and admonishing the church and even scolding these churchgoers in an attempt to get them back on track in regards to their faith. He has spent his ministry up to this point as an evangelist, as a missionary, as a church planter. But here in Galatians, he speaks more as a pastor. And then we come to chapter 6. And it is as though his tone changes. And he begins to instruct and to encourage. And there's a sense in which he is using the same speech that Churchill used in 1941. Never give up. Never give up. Never give up. Never, 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 never. Look at what he tells them, and through them what he says to us. He says, brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Gently. And the key word is restore. You see, the issue, he, the issue he's speaking about specifically here is sin. But I think we can broaden the playing field a bit and make it wide enough to include most of us. I'd say all of us, but some of you have already reached perfection and I can tell that just by looking at you. How many of us have fallen? How many of us have stumbled as we strive to live this faith? Most of us. I was sitting in my little home office during our days at Denver First Church. It was a Tuesday, if I remember correctly, and I was working on a sermon for the coming Sunday. And as they were working on my, my, my computer, and it was one of those desk model computers, not my laptop. It had the big tower over here at the side and the big monitor and all of those things. And you, remember, you know how... Once in a while when you're on your computer, the little note pops up that says, you, you have mail? It popped up. It said, I had a message. And there was enough of the message I could read that caused me to want to click on it and read the rest of the message. Because that first part of the message that I read broke my heart and it, and it was shocking to me. 
Because it said that a friend of mine, a pastor friend, had suffered a a moral failure. And that note was not from him, but it was about him. And I had known him for a number of years, and his intellect and his ability was of such a high measure that I had no doubt that he would become one of our highest elected leaders in our particular denomination, our little tribe. While I was on staff at Nazarene headquarters, he had been my pastor. I didn't have a peer, I didn't have a colleague that I admired more. And when I saw that little note, it took me a few moments to grasp the sense of loss that I felt by reading that because I knew what that meant. He had surrendered his credentials as an ordained minister in the church. And then it dawned on me that I had to pick up the phone and try to call him. What had happened had been weeks before I received the news. I'm usually on the tail end of the Church of the Nazarene grapevine. When it gets to me, it's old news. But by the time I got it, he had already resigned from his church, surrendered his credentials, and been relieved of his position as pastor of a significant church. It was a church that I would later serve as interim pastor. So I picked up the phone and I made that phone call. And it's one of those calls that you dread. You know the call I'm talking about. The phone begins to ring on the other end and you're saying to yourself, maybe he won't pick up. Maybe I can just leave a message and that'll be as good as if we really got to speak. And after about three rings, I heard him say hello. And I called him by name. And that was about all that I could say because words were so difficult. And so I stumbled for words and said something like, I, I, uh, I, I, I've heard about what happened and I, I, I just wanted to call. And as he spoke, there was deep grief in his voice and embarrassment and and shame as he thanked me for calling. And we visited for a while. And then I asked him, how's your wife? And he said, oh, Tim, she's an angel. She's been Jesus to me through this. We continued to visit for a while and promised to keep in touch, which we certainly have. And we hung up. And he went on with his life and I went on with mine. And about three years later, I resigned as the pastor at Denver First Church. And it was not what I had planned. I still had three years left on a four-year call or contract. But attendance had started to sag and my leadership waned. And as it did, I struggled. 
what was going on. And as I struggled, emotionally there was this sense of failure that began to kind of settle down on me. And my decision making suffered. And so in an attempt to feel better or to figure out what was going on, I went to the doctor and I was given antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications. But I wasn't doing any better as a leader. And I desperately wanted someone to become an executive pastor who would come in and take the reins of that church as far as the business side was concerned and, 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 and deal with, the, with the, the, the personnel. We had 12 assistant pastors and 49 people on the payroll. And I wanted someone to deal with that and give me a greater sense of freedom. And so the board in an effort to help me, in fact, hired a person for that role. But it only made matters worse. By then, I was seeing a counselor on a weekly basis trying to discover what was going on with me and who I was and, 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 and what to do. And I was miserable and I did not know where to turn. What do you do? You've learned to live on the income that you're receiving and and it was significant for a Nazarene pastor. I had a mortgage. I had grandkids living in town. I didn't want to leave all of that. And you begin to convince yourself that if you leave, a lot of other people are going to leave too. You've got to stay just to help the church maintain this status quo. But eventually I realized through the fog that not only was I hurting myself, but I was hurting this church that I loved. And so I submitted my resignation and I walked out that last Sunday feeling like a total failure. The enemy wants you to believe that you are. And in the church world, no matter which one you're a part of, the enemy wants you to believe that your entire denomination knows. But they don't. And in reality, it doesn't affect them. So Jane and I put our furniture in storage and we headed up Highway 24 to the cabin, what was our cabins, where we now live. And I sat in a recliner and I stared out the window and watched Fountain Creek run past through our backyard. And you know who the first person was that called me? It was that pastor that I had called three years before. And now he was in the process of restoring me. And the truth is, that before I ever walked out that last day, this pastor, this former pastor, had called me. And he had written the resignation letter that I turned in to my board and my people. It was almost a year after my resignation that I discovered myself in my first interim role, and it was down the Highway 50 at La Junta, Colorado. It's a wonderful church out there on the plains. And you know what I discovered? I discovered that God, through all the turmoil that I had gone through, God had given me the exact job I had been seeking all along. 
And in just a couple of years, I was serving as interim pastor at the church where my fallen friend attended. And I got to help again in the process of restoring him gently. Look around you this morning. There's someone in this room or someone who isn't who needs your call or your kind word or your counsel or to hear you say, never give up. Never give up. Never give up. And then if you're still in chapter 6, in verse 2, Paul says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And I think perhaps the operative word in that verse might be, if you're trying to outline the message, it could be relieve. I was a 14-year-old city kid growing up in Wichita, Kansas. I say I was a city kid. We... uh, I grew up on a dead-end dirt road, but it was still within the city limits of Wichita. And I thought I was kind of tough. Until one summer day, my mom's cousin called and asked my mom if she thought I would be willing to come out to their farm and help them bale hay. Anybody here ever bale hay? Okay. You're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. I said I would be ready to do that because they were going to pay me $1.25 an hour. We're talking money here. Big money. So I arrived. Mom took me out there, drove me out into the country, pulled into their driveway. The farmer told me, pointed to about a 1951 Ford pickup truck, and he said, I want you to get in that, and you're going to follow us to the field. I knew how to drive, Because I used to drive that dead-end dirt road. Dad would let me drive. And I knew how to drive a stick shift. So I got in that that truck and I fired the thing up. And he said, now follow us. And he had a tractor and a trailer and he took off. And I'm I'm in this truck all by myself. I'm driving. And I don't have a driver's license. But farm kids don't need. They don't have to mess with a driver's license. And now I'm a farm kid, at least on this day. And so I took off, and I'm shifting gears. And I'm driving on a real paved road. It's not just a dead-end dirt road. And we got to the field, and the tractor pulled off and pulled that trailer. And I followed with the truck, and then he had me stop and turn it off. And they hooked that trailer up to a contraption that they call the, the baler. And that was behind the tractor, and then the trailer behind that. And they had me get up on that trailer. And they gave me this instrument that was created by Satan. It's a hay hook. And you grasp it it with your hand, and that machine, the, the tractor is driven along, and that machine sucks up the hay that's been cut in late in night, neat little rows, and it presses it and wraps it into a bale, a rectangular bale, and spits it out the back. And you take that hay hook and hook that, and you pull it off that machine, and then you drag it to the back of that trailer, and you begin to lay it there in neat formation, 
And then you begin to stack it higher. Higher than I could reach you were to stack that hay. Now, we started going in ever smaller circles around that field. And what ticked me off was that his son, who was only 12, was driving the tractor. And I thought, I'm 14, I should be able to drive the tractor. But I couldn't even get those bales up fast enough. And finally... The farmer's son stopped the truck, the tractor, and got back up on the trailer with me for a few moments and helped me stack the bales high enough that we could continue. And it was somewhere out on the back side of that field as we were making a lap that I know I heard God speak to me about going into ministry because I didn't want to become a hay baler for the rest of my life. I was out of my league. And when that young boy stopped that tractor and climbed back up on that trailer to help me catch up, he relieved me. Sometimes we just need someone to come alongside us and give us a hand. See, folks, we're the church. I'm not sure that we... I'm not sure that we understand We're the church. We don't have time to be arguing with one another. We got folks that we need to restore gently. Folks whose burdens we have the ability to relieve. And we need to be about that. And in order to do that in a Christ-like manner, Paul would admonish us in verse 4 by saying, test your own actions. Then you can take pride in yourself without comparing yourself to somebody else. And to me, the operative word there might be review. Examine yourself. You see, those of us who've been in the church the longest can begin to function from a standpoint of a holier-than-thou attitude. Or, I've been around longer than anybody. Or, I know this church better than anyone. And we begin to function as though that gives us some kind of seniority where we have more authority and we have more power. So we become like the Pharisees spoken of by Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 verse 5 when He said, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. Maybe with these days of transition would be a good time for us to answer a question. Why do you do what you do when it comes to your ministry in this local church? Paul is encouraging us to examine our motives. And he's telling us to do our own job to the best of our ability and then we don't have to compare ourselves to others. Let me tell you something. I, I get around people that I know, shadow, no, no shadow of a doubt, they are better Bible students, better Bible scholars than I am. Or people that are prayer warriors. And I have a friend that reads the Bible through three or four times every year. And honestly, I, I wonder how he does that. 
But my task is not to compare myself to Him. My job is to be the best me I can be. Knowing my own personality and my own limitations and my own issues. And the same is true of you. My father had an eighth grade education. And when Jane and I had first started in ministry and our children were small, we're in a little church down in Oklahoma, and we didn't have any money. So when vacation time came, we would put our two girls in the car and we would drive to Topeka, Kansas, where my parents lived. They lived in an old farmhouse, had one time been a dairy, not with them, but they bought it when there were just five acres and the old farmhouse. And we would go there because we knew there would be free food and babysitting. And so we would go. And I remember that on occasion I would come down and I'd walk through the living room and through the kitchen dining area from this old farmhouse built in the 1890s and I would go out the door that had once been the back door. And it would take me out to what had once been a screened-in porch, but my dad had put windows in there and turned it into a room. And I would walk down there and I would see him out in that room early in the morning. And I remember walking in, sitting down beside him, and he had his Bible on his lap. And he was reading. And it was over in the book of Leviticus, or one of those Old Testament, highly inspirational books. And I said, Dad, what are you reading? He told me. And I said, Dad, why are you reading that? And he said, oh, Tim, I don't know exactly why I'm reading that. And and honestly, Tim, when I'm over here in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, I'm not sure I understand what I'm reading. But it's in there, and I think I'm supposed to read it, and so I do. I look back on that these days, and I think how unfortunate it would be If my father were to compare himself to my friend who reads it through three or four times a year and believe that he wasn't doing anything because he was just reading a chapter a day. Give God the best you have to give. Whether that's devotions or your volunteer service or your stewardship. And then according to verse 4, Take pride in yourself. Take pride in yourself. It's a sanctified pride. It's okay. And let me say a word to you this morning about churches. They come in all sizes. And I served all sizes. From 74 in my first church to over 2,000 at Denver First Church. And let me tell you that all of those churches have a role to play. And I know that it's sometimes discouraging when a church was once larger and then it becomes smaller. And it's very possible that we will experience that during days of transition. But I want to tell you that the size of the church does not determine the greatness of the church. That's not The issue, you have opportunities that some of those churches that are multi-mega churches do not have. And here's the thing, God 
God wants us to use the things He has given us. To exploit the gifts that we have because we as a congregation can do some things better than anyone. So let's work hard and not compare and then take pride in what we do. A job well done. And then Paul moves on to an admonition in verse 7 when he says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. From the, a man who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. And one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And in those words, you don't know it, but he has taken us right back to chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. And the key word here to describe this verse would be refrain. Don't mock God. Don't believe that you can live one way and reap something else. Paul is saying that if you sow the seed of sin, don't expect to reap a harvest of the Spirit. Last summer, I ordered a kit for my wife. It was a greenhouse kit. Got it, put it together, set it up, put heat in there. We can't afford, we can't afford to keep the thing heated. I told her she's going to have to get a less expensive hobby. Because just keeping the little electric heater going in there is like doubled our electric bill. And I'm thinking, man, this is not good. But she, she's already got seeds planted in there. And, this one, and, and it's funny looking at what she's planted because here, this is a little greenhouse about six feet wide and maybe eight feet deep. And she's got pumpkins planted in there. And I said, Jane, you, you do know this is a vining plant, don't you? And it will take over this greenhouse eventually. She's thinking she'll be able to transplant it one day. I don't know that you can grow a pumpkin up here if you do transplant it in this weather. If you plant pumpkins, you better plan on harvesting pumpkins. Don't you think you're going to plant pumpkins and harvest watermelon because it ain't going to happen. If you live your life listening to the sinful nature, guess what you are planting? And what you're going to harvest. So, Paul is saying, hey, get a grip. You know better than this. Yeah, God is full of mercy and He is a God of grace, but living like He owes you something is a mockery. Don't do it. And then He says this, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Church, He's talking to us. He's talking to a church in transition. He's talking to you and me. And he's talking about reward. You will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Let me tell you something. Pastors come and go. And worship leaders come and go. And evangelists come and go. 
and church members come and go. And sometimes we look around and wonder, was it worth it? We've stayed true. We've hung in there. We've given countless dollars and hours and tears across the years. Was it worth it? And I want to give you a resounding yes. It was worth it. It is worth it. And it will continue to be worth it. Sometime after I had left Denver First Church, I was invited back to speak there at a fundraising banquet for a particular ministry they have there that's called 5280. That ministry is for street kids and homeless people around the Denver area. And so I told them I would. I'd be happy to do that. And it was up in the fellowship hall at that church. And so I went back and it was kind of like a reunion for me. I was seeing people that I hadn't seen in a long time. And I was enjoying the evening. Before I ever got up to speak, I had the opportunity to just kind of work the room, you know, and shake hands and say hi to people and greet them after such a long period of time. And I was standing back by the door where people were coming in, just kind of milling around. And I was there when this couple walked in, and I couldn't tell you their name. I didn't know their name. And actually, I didn't recognize them. And that's not that unusual in a church with a couple thousand people. But as they entered, this gentleman shook my hand. And then on the way in, as he shook it, he just continued to walk. You know how people do. They grab your hand and they just keep walking. And he's shaking my hand. And what he said as he walked in blew me away. He said, you led me to Christ while you were here. I did. How did I? I had no idea. And so I continued to mill around the room and people were starting to be seated and another gentleman came up to me and shook my hand and we had a very pleasant conversation, very affirming conversation. And later on, the, um, the leader of that event that night came up to me and she pointed across the room. She said, you see that guy over there in the gold-colored shirt? I said, yeah. She said, he attributes his conversion to Christ to you. Why don't people ever tell you these things? I, let me tell you again. I didn't recognize him. I didn't know his name. When she gave me his name, I didn't recognize the name. But here's what I'm saying. Nothing I said that night at that banquet meant as much to me as those two testimonies. I'm not sure I helped that event, but that event blessed me beyond measure. We will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Hang in there. Don't give up. Some of you perhaps this morning are dealing with things in your life that no one else in this place knows about. Maybe it has to do with your children. Maybe it has to do with your job. Maybe it has to do with your marriage. Maybe it has to do with your older parents. 
Don't give up. Never give up. Never give up. Never give up. We will reap a harvest if we do not give up. That's what I want you to think when you leave here today. Never give up. Never give up. Never give up. There is one who cares about you more than anyone in this world. His name is Jesus. And he's aware of what you're going through today. What you're dealing with today. What we're dealing with as a congregation today. He knows all about those things. And if he could voice the words to you today, he would say to you as well, don't give up. Don't turn your back on me. I'm here to help you. I'm here to guide you. I'm here to give you strength. I'm here. Never give up. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence today to give you thanks. Because you are worthy. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our thanksgiving. You are worthy. Father, we've gathered here today to worship You. And I pray that we've done that. And that those people who have had opportunity to tune in from their homes, I pray that it was more than just a little time watching something on a computer. But that perhaps there was a sense, a source of encouragement for them today that they hadn't even imagined when they got up this morning. Father, I pray for these good folks who put fear behind them and decided to take a chance. I pray that you would bless them and that we will go here with a new mantra today. Never give up. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you so much for your kindness to me in these two weeks as we're trying to get acquainted, figure out who in the world we are in relationship to one another. So just continue moving along. And if you'll watch the website, we'll let you know about next Sunday. But my guess is we'll probably do the same thing as we have today. But we'll let you know about children's ministries and you might want to check on that. Thank you for coming today. As you leave, never give up. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face to shine upon you and give you peace. Go in peace. God bless you.
your gaze be lifted up.